Welcome to Curious Church Podcasts. I'm Sam. I'm Aaron. I'm Matt. We're so glad that you've joined us today, that you've chosen <laughs> to listen to us, to fill, the, to fill your car, your ears, I mean, wherever you are, to fill it with our voices. And I'd like to say this time, if you feel like you're wasting your time listening to us, it's our fault. We should make a better product. Oh, wow. I think our product Instead is of putting pretty it on amazing. Listener, yeah, maybe you're right. I would like to, though, highlight today that we're actually getting paid to do this in some strange way. So, what what way? How are you getting paid to do this? <laughs> I thought we weren't going to tell him about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh this is unbelievable. <laughs> we haven't done this section in a while. I didn't tell these guys that we're going to do this, but I think we should do an Apple Talk. Talking about... Talking about Apples. The thing I'd like to say about apples is this. An apple is a wonderful snack. Yep, great. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly, you probably haven't thought about this in a while, but if you buy like almond butter and dip apple into almond butter, that is an amazing snack. Hmm. You know what else is really good? Let me tell you. Cookie hmm. butter from Trader Joe's. You know the Trader Joe's cookie butter? Have you ever had this? Nope. I've heard of it. I've like, heard, heard of it. it. It's, so it's like essentially a paste made of ground up cookie. <laughs> but it's delicious. And you dip apples in and that. And apple is perfect with cookie butter. Yeah. yeah. And it's particularly like a Fuji apple is a wonderful dipping apple. Oh. It has a nice crunch to it. But if you're having something sweet, probably like cookie butter, then you might want to use Granny Smith. Mm, you could know, go a little tart. Smith. You want to go tart. Yeah. Really Paired with up. something sweet. I that love Red excellent. Delicious. Because it's uh, the only apple that tells me how to feel about it. <laughs> I think we're all on record with our loathing of Red First Delicious. of all, the Red Delicious apple color is a bit too dark. The red is off. It's a little we, too I didn't dark. really mean to revisit the Red Delicious and how much we hate it. Yeah. Plus, the skin is too thick. You know, I, springtime is an interesting time in the Northern Hemisphere to be talking about apples. Because they're not in season. Do we miss them? We're the farthest from apple harvest that I, we could possibly be. I'm still be. eating an apple every single day. Huh, are so they? I don't understand. I don't understand. Trader Joe's still has apples. That's where Rachel and I tend to shop. We're sponsored today by Trader Joe's. What I don't understand is they're still reasonably cheap. It seems like out of season because I've had the same thought. They should be really expensive. But I can get a bag of apples for like three bucks. These are jazz apples. Oh, yeah. Which are apparently a cross between Gala and Brayburn. Oh. That's all I know. That, that's now the... Are these, these Northern Hemisphere? Are these like Washington apples? Yeah, where are these from? I'm not sure where they're from. I guess mm -hmm. that's what I need to find out. Mm -hmm. Have you ever eaten a worm in an apple? No, but that reminds me of a classic joke. What's worse than finding a worm in your apple? What? Finding half a worm. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's, that was pretty good, Matt. <laughs> I, have an, I have an apple observation. Okay. Uh, in when we were we went to Legoland in the fall, and they have this is classic carnival like amusement park kind of snack, oh, but they yeah. have waffle fries or I mean apple fries. Ooh, apple fries! I want that. Yeah, so it's just strips of apple deep fried and with rolled in cinnamon and oh, sugar. Wow. Whoa, I want and it. They even had like a cream, like a whipped cream kind of uh, dipping. That sauce. sounds really good. It was good. it was great. It, it was the furthest for it's like as unhealthy as you could possibly make yeah. an apple, but it was it was great. Yeah, Delicious. if you do anything like you you know deep fry apples, 
or you like chocolate covered strawberries, any kind of fruit dipped in something, glazed with something, is so good. Any, any kind of fruit where you're disguising its primary taste with sugar <laughs> tastes really good. That's how we all ate our vegetables as kids, though, yeah, right? It's true. like butter and salt and sugar and brown sugar on my carrots growing up. Ketchup yeah. on peas for me. Oh, whoa, really? Yeah, that is real. disgusting. <laughs> when you're a kid, though, you put, can put ketchup on anything. Yeah, yeah for sure. And then ketchup it just and helped it get. Peas? I hated the taste of peas, so anything I could put on there to that help is me disgusting. eat them. Yeah. Isn't it great when you were got to be like an adult and you decided like like I would dread the days when we'd have liver or whatever for like a particular thing for ketchup. My on mom liver. would make, "Mom, I love you, but liver. Why did you do liver?" <laughs> But whenever liver night came, I was just I was just oh, dreading it, and we all night? choke it. I don't, I don't think it was called <laughs> liver night. <laughs> but we had liver like sometimes, yeah, yeah. and it was oh. it was really hard for me to eat. And then when you get to be a grown you up, you're like, I don't ever have to eat yeah. that again. I get to choose what yeah. I eat. Whose liver is it, by the way? I don't think. Like, it's is it. this a cow liver? Is this a horse liver? Is this a <laughs> chicken liver? Oh, I think it's. Have you ever thought about that? I would think goat liver. Cow, if you're having just liver, bird liver. But I wouldn't know the difference. It could be any yeah. kind of liver. It's Squid just liver? awful. Shark liver. liver? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's yeah. Maybe it's not even mammal. Deep water delicacies. Ugh. Like, what do you mean it's not a mammal? Well, it doesn't. I guess Squid only mammals a mammal. have a li- oh. livers. <laughs> Shark, I think, is also a fish. <laughs> We're just responding to the things yeah. that you said. Mm. Good Did you pie. say deep sea delicacies? Yeah, because he was talking about sharks. And yeah, I just like the alliteration. Yeah. Just thinking about new segment ideas. It was, Ooh, it was deliberate. It was a deliberate, deliberate deep sea, deep sea <laughs> delicacy. Apple talk. Is apple talk done? Nope. Let's oh. say some more. <laughs> if someone gave me a red delicious apple right now, I'll tell you what I would do with it. I'd take it into the parking lot. And I'd run it over with my car. That's what I would do. How many times? And then I would, and then it would be smashed on the pavement, and I'd kick it. With smashed up, I'd kick it into little bits <laughs> into the bushes, and let the birds eat it. Let those wild turkeys eat it. I feel like our hatred for Red Delicious is like almost like Red Delicious is becoming yeah. personified. If like I could, like if it's I an could, enemy. if I hmm. could throw it farther enough, I'd throw it into outer space. <laughs> I'm surprised we didn't talk about Red Delicious when we talked about Psalms and enemies. It feels like it, you know, belongs. <laughs> if to that you're a Red Delicious lover, please drop us a line and explain <laughs> it to us. <laughs> Curious Church at GrandSprings.org. <laughs> You'll be met with considerable skepticism, but we're willing to hear. We're willing I know to we've hear you out. We talked about this before, but it is the worst apple. It is appalling. It is disgusting. It is traumatic. It is a disaster. <laughs> it is a disaster. I do think they were so common growing up. I'm actually into it now again. They were so common growing up that it kind of turned me off to apples because that was yeah, kind of the only kind too. there was. I'm like, oh, apples are terrible. That's because they didn't. They weren't breeding apples yet. I think. Are we sure? Like, this is that? like 20, 25 years ago. We need like there was no there was no Honeycrisp back then because they hadn't invented it yet. Oh, so yes. like way back when there was two wow. options. You have the green apple, which is Granny Smith, and you have the red green delicious. Green and the red. Yeah, that's green true. Green and red. That's, that's it. True. And you might find a yellow delicious in there. Yeah. Or maybe. gold it's called golden delicious. Right. What'd you find out? <laughs> My fact check is uh Honeycrisp, 
released in 1991. See? Hmm. But patented or de- designated in 1974, so someone had it kind of oh. maybe a start of it in 1974. It was patented in 1988, but not released until 1991. Hmm. I didn't know you could patent a uh, fruit. Oh, the Apple industry is fascinating for their patents. Seriously, <laughs> seriously, because they cannot—they cannot patent the um, the actual like breeding of two genetic strains. They can only patent the name and brand. So there are other things that so there could might... be the exact Honeycrisp apple, but what's pan- like patented genetically is identical. Exactly. Wow. But what's patented is the name. So honey you could crisp. do the same. You could you could do the same apple. But yep. call it what? Something else? Your own thing. The Gutierrez. Oh. The Gu- Gutierrez Gala. <laughs> but, you can't, yeah, but, I can't use gala but I can't use Gala. Well, maybe if you had, a, had your name in there. I the Gutierrez know. Delicious. Anyways, people, thank you for joining us on Apple Talk again. I know you've missed it. So did we. So today we're going to be talking about biblical interpretation, which is really a follow-up to our last conversation. If you didn't catch that, you might want to go back and listen to that conversation, but you don't have to. There's so, there was so much good stuff that we had to uh, split it up. Yeah, we bit. thought, let's do it again. Let's do part two. So, if you've never been to church before, let's say you walk into church, and it's kind of an interesting situation because at some point in the service, we open up this book hmm. And there's teaching that happens in a worship service, and not just in a worship service, this could happen like in a Bible study too, where it's like, we're going to gather around this book, and we're going to talk about this book for a while. And that kind of brings up some interesting kind of dynamics, some interesting questions. What are we doing in that moment? What is that? Why are we attributing so much importance to this Bible, this book? That we believe is, that Christians believe is authoritative. And what does that mean? How did we get to that idea that it's authoritative? Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk about that just a little bit, and then we have a conversation around that. I mean, in some sense, I mean, it's funny that we're having this as part two, right? Because this is really, it should have been part. This one. is really part one. Uh, <laughs> you don't you don't really get to the reading of it without having formed some ideas about you know why it's significant, um, and obviously different churches. Also, just visually, if you think of worship spaces, we'll present this differently, right? So, some places have mm. a, a massive Bible that always has a place on stage, and everyone reads out of it. At Granite Springs, we actually encourage frequently uh, more memorized scripture. So, in fact, you never see a physical Bible. Well, you do, but it's often, uh, it's not as sort of in your face right there. We don't even have, like, stacks of them that we hand out and put uh, in chairs no, or anything. No. So we'll print out a Bible passage in our worship guide or we'll project it onto a screen mm-hmm. or people can access it on their phones. Yeah. Or they brought, I see people bring their yeah. own Bibles. Or some people bring their great. own. Yeah. But we don't have a symbolic Bible like you were just saying. Which is kind of interesting actually in light of last time we were talking about the importance of context, uh, but we actually comfortably, comfortably lift passages out of context to give them to people in our worship guide. Um, which expresses something about what we think Scripture does sort of in isolation, mm-hmm. actually, uh, which I think relates exactly to this question of what is Scripture, what does it do, where does it come from? Maybe the question that I would pose back to you guys so we can start having a bit of a conversation about this is where does Scripture's authority come from? Can I, can I back up to something you said before oh, we yeah, hit sure. that question? So you are saying 
um, when we print passages in our worship guide, we're lifting them out of context. Yeah. Which I guess is true in a macro sense, if you consider context to be like the whole Bible or maybe the whole book of the Bible, is that what you mean? Yeah, so I simply mean um, as opposed to, so we're making a choice Mm -hmm. to print just the passage that's being preached on as opposed to the choice to have Bibles at each Mm -hmm. chair so that people can sort of, you see what comes before and comes after. Okay. Um, I don't don't think that's necessarily a negative. That was one of the things I was trying to emphasize last time is uh, we can become slaves to context unhelpfully uh, and you sort of submit the Bible only to this mechanistic approach, and that becomes the only way that you can ever read Scripture. I think that's right. actually problematic in itself. But it's a choice that you make uh, to do that particular presentation. Even I find that phones are kind of the same way. They're, uh, this maybe ties in with our technology conversation, not to be down on phones, but the limited real estate that in which you can read Scripture, uh, for me, I just find it really narrows sort of the scope so I don't enjoy and I don't actually use really my phone to read the Bible at all because it sort of makes me so, um, makes my sight so narrow on a pass. I can only get three or four verses. Yeah. It, it just becomes challenging. It's almost like uh, the, the medium, you know, is limiting the way that I can think about it. Like mm-hmm. it, I can't just see that there's three. I know that there's you know, X number of verses before this, but I'm not seeing where it's ending. Like if it's a Psalm, for example, I started, I don't know if it's a long psalm, I don't know if it's a short right, psalm. Right. All of those things that I can tell just on a printed page I actually lose mm-hmm. uh, when I'm reading on a phone. So, so when, uh, I have a similar thing, so when I work on, when I put, kind of put the worship guide together, and I'll uh, literally be sometimes, you know, copying, mm-hmm. pasting from a website, because that's just the simplest way to transfer text around. But if you, like, plug in just those, like, the exact passage in, BibleGateway.com, it does feel very like you're just like laser focusing in on something and and you're not seeing like the whole picture, you're just like looking through a little window. So I will sometimes have, I mean, there are tools to do this where you can kind of expand and see the chapter before Mm -hmm. and after. But I found that with holding, uh, you know, if if you're holding a physical Bible, there's kind of a sense of curiosity, I think, that takes, that you take on and you're like, if you're paying attention to the story, you kind of wonder how it got to that point or what's coming next. And you can see, uh, you know, if you're seeing a few chapters at a time on a couple pages of an open Bible, you are getting more of a sense of what's maybe the context in the story and what's happening. Yeah, so that's, that's maybe the negative, you know, if we're talking about this sort of printing or selecting a passage, the, the drawback of that is you're potentially sort of uh, um, limiting the scope of what people are experiencing. I think there is a positive to that, though, as well, in which, in some sense, and remember, like, these are, these are always subtle communications. Like, most people don't sit there and think, oh, this is what it means that they've done this. But in some sense, though, you're also saying uh, the word is powerful enough that even experiencing just this passage deeply can transform you. Mm. And that's where I'm saying I think there's something related to how we think about what Scripture is, yeah. because uh, you don't need... Uh, you know, pages and pages and pages of context, and you don't need uh, like a book beside your Bible, a commentary or a Bible background dictionary in order to have this text impact you directly. Mm. Um, so we're we're saying something about the nature of Scripture and how it works too, just by printing a particular passage. And that gets back to this uh, that question that you posed that the Bible is authoritative, and where do we get that idea? What does that mean? Yeah. 
Is that how you phrase that question exactly? Yeah, I mean, where does the Bible's authority come from? I think a lot of people will want to say, well, the Bible's authoritative. But the question, I think, is, well, why? Why is it authoritative? Well, I think most people, most Christians, would give some sort of thoughtful response in the sense that we believe, Christians believe, that the Bible is the Word of God. So that how, somehow this book is God's words. Now, how they come to us through human, you know, scribes and through various culture interpret like, it's complicated, but when you get down to the basics of what's happening, we believe this is God's word. These are God's words to humanity. Right. So that's where it kind of gets its authority from. Right. And then um, I think the, the question for that thoughtful answer, though, is then, well, if that's the case, if if you truly believe that the authority actually comes from God being behind the words, then why don't we actually listen and obey it? Um, I, th I think that it's quite right to say that God stands behind his word, and in some sense, this is the word of God. But ultimately, authority actually seems to be something that we give to things or don't give to things. So the word certainly has power, it has the ability to do things. It contains truths that are powerful. But I would suggest that it's authority. And I'm, I'm stealing this idea very much from my dad. So hat tip to my dad here. <laughs> I would say very much so that authority really is something that we have the ability to give and take away. Um, uh, so we're the ones who say, if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, we're the ones who say this book has authority in my life. Exactly. Because you could take any book and it could become authoritative, authoritative in your yeah. life. And in fact, people do, right? Yeah, there are well, entire religions have... <laughs> based on people taking different books as authorities in their life. Or even if you just, some people have a bookshelf in their, in their house of books that they keep because they made an impact on them. So in right. some sense, they're saying mm -hmm. these books matter to me. They made a difference in my life. And in that sense, they're authoritative. Yeah. Mm. No, note that that's not to negate the power Right, because power and authority are actually separated. Then, so if you think of like a classic example of like a policeman, the policeman has power to do things. Like if you are speeding, the policeman has power to uh, pull you over and ticket you. Now he can only pull you over though if you give authority to him to pull you over. If you see Some the lights, <laughs> if you see the lights and decide to run <laughs> because you're not giving him authority, uh, then you know you've chosen to pursue a certain line. Now, eventually he'll catch up with you and now he has the power to arrest you, whether you give him the authority to do that or not. <laughs> right? I refuse to give you the authority to arrest me. So, and all that to say is it's not to negate the power of scripture to say that we are in some sense the source, like we give it authority in our lives. But I think what's helpful about that is it begins, uh, it begins to highlight and actually force us to consider our relationship to scripture. Uh, because it's really easy to say scripture is authoritative. And so we say, oh, everything in it really matters, or it's good for faith and practice, or however we kind of want to phrase the significance. And uh, because we say the Bible really matters to me, we don't actually ever get into investigating the ways that our lives don't line up with the call mm. of scripture. But when we realize, okay, if the authority that we give scripture comes from our decision to give it authority, then it quickly becomes apparent, oh, I don't give authority to this thing that Jesus said, or this thing that Paul says, or this instruction that God has for me in the Bible, uh, which I'm claiming to be authoritative in my life. So I think it helps 
highlight that significantly. And how do we not take this like this kind of postmodern approach where we say the Bible is authoritative because I'm giving it authority? You know what I mean? Like it becomes very personalized as, as opposed to like the community somehow saying, we believe whether or not you agree with this, that the Bible, it's authoritative on its own as opposed to what I say about it or what you say about it. Yeah, I mean, that's helpful. I think, again, this is where I draw a, maybe a fine distinction, right? So um, the community, and we can agree that the Bible has power. There's, there's truth in it. Um, what I'm trying to say, though, is that truth and power are not authoritative in and of themselves. Like authority is a relation, a relational understanding. The things that we want to confess about Scripture that are universal are things about its truth, right? So we want to say, uh, as Christians, the com the community of Christians says the things that are universally true about Scripture is that is the Word of God. That it's we actually start using Scripture's own language about it, right? That it's God breathed, authoritative, all these sorts of things. So it comes from God. There's true divine agency. That's the thing that we don't want to move away from. But when we're talking about authority, that's now relational language. How do we relate to scripture? And I think that actually can remain individual without losing uh, the more sort of what we might call universal reality that the Christian community wants to claim is true about scripture. So as you grow, like in your understanding of scripture, it can actually become more and more authoritative mm -hmm. in your life. And as a community grows together, the Bible can become more authoritative in the gathering. Is that, is that true? That's an interesting idea. I, th I think that's true. We're not talking about truth. We're not saying it's no. becoming more true. No. We're saying it's, it's importance in our lives and it's form, formative power in our lives that we're somehow recognizing that, acknowledging that, and somehow surrendering to it mm -hmm. or allowing its power and its truth to shape us. Yeah, I think that's, that seems exactly right to me, that it's uh, part of our formation is to submit more and more to uh, and give it more and more authority in our life. So to say, this, this area of my life that I would five years ago have never allowed Scripture to speak to, I'm ready, for, I'm ready to hear what God has always been saying about that area now and give that actually authority to speak into that area of my life. Matt, what would you say to someone who says, I don't read my Bible, but yeah. I come, but I come, let's say, let's say they come to church. Yeah. So they hear once a week, they're hearing a Bible passage read and taught, but they're not doing kind of what, what might be called personal Bible reading. Is that okay? I mean, I would start off by saying I'm very sympathetic with that person, right? Because <laughs> um, we feel like some people might say that's like that's somehow not enough. Yeah. Right. Like uh, once a week, hearing of scripture is somehow not enough, and I don't know where we've picked that that idea from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, probably various pietist movements over time, but I, th it's it's in some sense, right? There is no amount of scripture you could read that would be enough, right? If we believe that scripture is the things that What about we, a whole chapter? No, I mean, of course it's not enough. I mean, in some, in some sense, there's almost a sense in which you should just be reading it all the time. If it is really as powerful and as impactful and transform, transformational as we, as we believe it is, which I do believe it is, all those things, then there's almost, there's almost nothing better you could be doing. Now, obviously, we, we generally relegate that to like the activity of monks or nuns or people who have 
literally devoted their lives to religious activities and say, the rest of us, that's not a requirement. Um, and so I think it's helpful to start there to just recognize like all of us are in some sense not participating in the fullest sense, but it seems to be in the lives that we lead, which I think God honors that, that there's space for that. So to start off by just saying there's not a bar that we're, the, the potential bar is so high that it's not even worth trying to reach, mm. right? Uh, so then we come back to where most of us might be at or where this person you might be at. Which I think would be a pretty good discipline. I mean, if you think about over this next year, I'm going to go to church almost every Sunday, that's 52 Sundays, and I'm going to hear 52 different scripture readings, and I'm going to submit myself or, you know, to teaching about that passage. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, the way, and we talked about this, I think, a little bit last time is, my advice is always just do a little bit more, right? So if going to church every Sunday for you would be more than what you're currently doing, you're then hearing more scripture than you did before. And that that's great. Sort of the more you can take in, the better. If you're reading one verse kind of every day, why not try two verses every day? Mm. It's not a lot, but just a, just a little bit more. Again, remembering that uh, that kind of takes it away. I think sometimes when we say like, oh, you need to read a chapter a day or here's your, I mean, I've tried reading the Bible in a year plans and by like how did, January, how did that go? January 15th, <laughs> like I'm a week behind. So I know those don't And then it seems work. insurmountable. Yeah, yeah then you can never seems, catch up. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, by February, you've thrown away the plan and you are like, well, I don't know, maybe I'll just read a verse or something every now and then. <laughs> And it's like all this momentum that you thought, oh, I was going to read the whole Bible this year. I just think that stuff is typically not, mm. not that helpful. If someone has the motivation, like, well, great, go for it. But uh, sort of how guilt, <laughs> I'm speaking from personal experience here, how quickly uh, those things become burdens of guilt as opposed to invitations into Scripture. And maybe we could even talk a little bit here about the lectionary and how the lectionary yeah. over the course of three years is trying to, it's trying to move a community of people through the Bible. It doesn't hit every single passage and there's various, you know, complaints or schools of thought about, yeah. well, it should be real. It should be organized this way instead of that way. But what it's trying to do is really good, which is trying to move a community of, of faith through scripture. It's trying to hit a lot of different books, a lot of different passages, passages that might normally be either skipped over because they're difficult. And the lecturing does skip over uh -huh. some difficult I passages. That. That's part of the part of the feedback uh -huh. that people don't like about it. But anyways, it's trying. Yeah. Is the lectionary a three-year cycle? Uh -huh. I yeah, so it's like year A, year B, and, a, year, B, oh, and okay. year C. Right, okay. So there's different so every time you come through Advent, you're reading different passages. Right, and then the next year it's going to be different, and then next year it's going to be different, oh, and then cool. it repeats. Which I love that it repeats because I think that really captures this sense, like um, particularly as we've here at Grand Springs been, been preaching through the lectionary. One of the things you wrestle with as preachers is how do you include everything in a text or hit everything? And one of the things I've reflected on when you preach lectionary texts, it's going to come up again in three years. So you'll have another shot at it then. So you don't have to sort of get everything out. And I think kind of the same thing with reading scripture. If, if you're trying to read with the lectionary uh, and you miss a day, it'll come up in three years. Like, it's okay that you missed a day. Hang in there. Like, that's, yeah, like kind of, kind of that way. Like, it's going to come back. 
And I mean, that's, that's the beauty of having a, a sort of complete canon in some sense is that uh, there's always tomorrow. Yeah. There's, there, there are new days and there are new opportunities and scripture's kind of not going anywhere. We've seen, we've seen that for about 2,000 years. Yeah, and if you belong to a church that, you know, that does the lectionary, that goes through it, in the course of you know, nine years, you've made three complete cycles through the lectionary, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. So you've gotten a pretty well-rounded diet of scripture over the course of three, six, nine years, 12 years, if you belong to a church that, that uses the lectionary. You could do the lectionary on your own too, right? I'm sure there are a million resources to do that. I mean, if people are curious about that, I think they should really pursue it. Yeah, and one of the nice things about the lectionary is there are, there are lectionaries that have readings for every day, but also a lot of them are like, here is the week's passages. Hmm. So at that point, you're not, even, you're not even having to read one every day. You could you know, almost split them over two days. Yeah. Uh, or take a few days and reread over yeah, every totally. few days or whatever. And it always involves an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, a gospel reading, specifically from one of the four gospels, and usually... Psalm. A psalm. So there again, within a week's reading, you're getting kind of a little bit from here and there all over the Bible. I think the real advantage to that kind of reading too, and you could do this on your own without the lectionary in some sense, is um, they thematically tie together. Okay, so um, you read psalms that are being quoted in the New Testament by those authors, and you're reading about festivals that are happening in the Old Testament or prophecy that's being fulfilled. You begin to get a really helpful view of the way uh, that Scripture works together right, as to kind of present a whole story. That's a real advantage. I sometimes tell my students that, or one of the things that I've done in the past that I find really interesting, there's this thing called the scripture, uh, the treasury of scripture knowledge, which is essentially just a massive like cross-reference list. One of the things that's interesting to do if you kind of want to do a kind of extended Bible study or reflection is to take just a verse of the New Testament, maybe one of Paul's letters or one of the general epistles like James or First Peter, Take a verse in there and then look it up in the treasury of scripture knowledge, and this is available for free online, and look up all the references that are listed alongside that verse. They're mostly Old Testament references. And basically what that does is it goes really granular. So like it will go, uh, if kingdom is mentioned, it will pull up a bunch of sort of loose references to kingdom from the Old Testament. And you look them up, and they're not all one-to-one correspondences. They're not quotes. Uh, but it starts to give you a really rich picture of, oh, this is, like all this imagery is being imported when this person uses this language and the old test, just how much sort of the story of scripture hangs together. It's kind of a fun practice. Yeah. What I like about that too, is the lectionary doesn't always give you the thematic, like it would give you the passages, Mm. but sometimes you have to try to figure out like, how is this old Testament passage connected to this Psalm connected to this epistle connected to this gospel reading? Because sometimes they seem like, what? I don't get it. (laughs) But it's kind of a bit of a kind of thinking through, like how do all these work together and why did they lump these four passages together in this week's reading? Yeah. I like how we started with the authority of scripture and moved into lectionary. Well, because so much of how much we give authority to scripture is going to be reflected in our engagement with it, how much we're reading it, right? So for me, it's actually a really, really helpful sort of measure of how authoritative is scripture in my life? Well, how much am I engaging with scripture? So if you're not engaging with it very much at all, 
the answer would be not very authoritative. I mean, it suggests that, you know, I mean, everyone has particularly busy weeks, right? Mm. And so there are, there are always exceptions to the rule. But as a rule, the things that you find authoritative or that are as significant as we claim scripture is, you're engaging with regularly. Matt, I'd really be interested in if you have a list. As a matter of fact, I do. Okay, so I, war- I warned my fellow hosts here, Sam and Aaron, that I was, I was bringing a potentially controversial, potentially you know, earth-shaking. We might get a lot of feedback on this. I wanted to relate it to kind of what we we're talking about. So this is my top five books of the Bible. Uh, <laughs> I'm declaring my top five books of the Bible. Most authoritative. Uh, no, I did, this is I the most authoritative in that. your life. <laughs> I didn't say that. Well, maybe so. Uh, I once had a university prof who told me, he actually told a whole class this, um, you're allowed to have favorite books of the Bible. You're just not allowed to have least favorite books of the Bible. So I like I like uh, that as a principle. So, but you're kind of like with number five. You're saying it's my least. This favorite. is my least favorite among my most favorite. But it's yeah, still, but yeah, it's still yeah, my still. least favorite. Well, do yeah. you have parts of the Bible that frustrate you though? Yeah, of course. But you don't talk about those because well, we want to okay. okay. be on his list. Perfect. All right, no, all I'm right. Just kidding. Maybe maybe another time I can bring my top five most frustrating. Books of the Bible. Oh, yeah. I'm excited about this. Let's hear like, it. Let's hear like Daniel would, would be a frustrating one. Oh, okay. uh, lots of visions and Daniel's stuff. Daniel's weird. But okay, give us number five. <laughs> okay, so I, I had to have a couple rules. Um, okay. So my rules were I had to have at least two Old Testament books. Okay. Okay, so That's I wanted fair. to have at least a balanced, somewhat balanced. Because um, you couldn't pick all, you know. Didn't want to pick, yeah, all New Testament letters. Okay, so number five, coming in a solid number five. Speaking of visions, Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Have you guys read Ezekiel recently? <laughs> nope. Ezekiel. Nope. E-Z-E-K-I-E-L. Um, Thanks for making me feel guilty with pick number one. <laughs> you know, to be honest, I haven't read I haven't read in its entirety in a long time. But Ezekiel's just got all these like really interesting vignettes in it. So it's got the, it's it's got got the dry bones. It's got the dry bones. It's got bones. the dry bones. Oh, it's it's valley of dry yeah. bones. Dry bones. Huh. It's also got this amazing passage. Uh, in, so the wheels. Does I wasn't it have the thinking wheels? of the wheels. Oh, but I think... Does it have the wheels? I thought it had the wheels. It maybe has the wheels. I was thinking of Ezekiel 47, though, which has this image of water coming from the temple. And it's this whole passage in which uh, the prophet's walking out and the water's like at his ankles. And then he keeps walking and it's at his knees. And then it's like at his waist. And then he can't swim anymore. And this water is going down from the temple to the Dead Sea. And it makes the Dead Sea fresh. And there's like because the Dead Sea, nothing can grow in it because its salt content so high. So it like makes the Dead Sea fresh and there's trees and uh, that are always sort of in season on its banks and there's fish and it's kind of this amazing vision. I think it's kind of in the background of uh, when Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are thirsty, um, and then says, and I will make you like springs of life or like, and then he's talking springs about of the spirit. Water. Springs of living water, exactly. The same image is pulling on Ezekiel 47. Which comes anyway. back again in Revelation, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. So just kind of a, there's a, these amazing uh, vignettes in Ezekiel that rank it number five on my list. That's okay. a good one for being your least favorite. Favorite. Among your favorites. Yeah. yeah. Number four. I'm sorry to hear you hate the Bible so much. <laughs> yeah. Number four, <laughs> Philippians. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. So I felt like Rejoice. I, I'm not a massive Paul guy. I do. I mean, obviously, Paul's critical for 
Christians, but uh, I've often tended in other directions, but I want to include one of his. And Philippians seems like just a really, really great Paul letter. You've got like some really concrete, practical things. Then you've got uh, some great sort of theology. You've got that hymn in yeah. chapter two. It's the book of joy, isn't it? Isn't the word joy or rejoice mentioned like 13, 14, 15 times? Now you're bringing more info than I even had prepped. Hmm. That's, that's a pretty good I poll, rejoice. That's true. Rejoice in the Lord always. Say it again. Rejoice. <laughs> joy. It is pure joy. That's <laughs> right. My brothers yeah, and sisters. Hmm. So that, that, and he's writing it from prison, I think. So that makes it all the right. more kind of joy in the midst of persecution and suffering. Yeah. So Philippians number four. Do you have a comment? No. Don't you want to You're read it now? I mean, this whole morning is making me... Uh, Guilty. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> longing is making me yeah, long longing. for my oh, Bible. Longing. Okay, yeah. that's good. That's good. Yeah. Uh, same here. Why do I keep feeling so guilty? Number three. Well, that, that's something for you to work out. <laughs> Your own time. <laughs> Number three is, uh, I feel like this three years ago would not have been on this list. But now, after being at Granite Springs for a few years, has made it on my list. That is the book of Psalms. Hmm. I've never spent so much time in Psalms as I have doing worship coordinating stuff here. Uh, and, you know, obviously our, our head pastor, lead pastor, Kevin Adams, is a big proponent, a reverend doctor, Kevin he Adams. He says it's the prayer book of the Bible, or the prayer book of God's people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's beautiful. There's so much in Psalms. Um, I think one of the things I'm always amazed about by Psalms is how much it's used, how much is quoted in the New Testament. Hmm. It's like, um, you know, I kind of intuitively would think that you want to quote like the key theological passages or like key didactic passages or the prophets all the time. And the prophets get quoted, of course, but Psalms just all the time in the New Testament. They just love to quote the Psalms. Uh, and sometimes it's there and they're not even directly quoting. So. Well, the most famous psalmist is David, David himself, which we often think of David as like warrior king, but we should actually think of him primarily as a songwriter. A musician. It's, I like his thinking pra- about- it's his prayers that we pray most often, and it's his prayers that Christ prays yeah. on the cross, especially. It's, and that's where, and Psalms actually are where I spend most of my time in the Bible, yeah. and especially um, for deriving music. And Would they be your number songs. one? I think they might be my number one. number one. I just love the idea that these the Psalms were, like you said, Jesus' prayer, like Jesus' prayer book when he was growing mm-hmm. up, right? As a boy, that's what he would study and memorize and know. Nice. Well, we're not to my number one yet. Oh. That was only my number, number three. three. Oh, number three, yeah, yeah. right. number two, the Gospel of John. I, it's unbelievable. It's the best out of the four. Hands down, 100%. Better than Matthew, Mark, <laughs> and Luke. Take that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. <laughs> no, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are great, but John, is, uh, John has a different project, and um, I think that shows. And the depth of his insight and the way that he explains it is, it's a book that you can just so, you know, in some sense we can go back to any passage of scripture over and over and over. Uh, John is just like, it's so obvious that you can go back to it over and over. And Wasn't over. that the last gospel written? Yeah, probably book of John, so. And its theology is much more developed. Mo- yeah, he seems probably. to be the, like the one who knew like what was going on. Well, it's like, yeah, the stories of Jesus have yeah. been living in the early church now for numerous, numerous years. And so there's been really a lot of thoughtful theology that's being developed and that's then happening in John's book. So the I am statements yeah, are, are yeah. in John's book, right. Right, right? Where Jesus is saying, I am this, I am this. Right. It's really, 
in some sense, the community's understanding of who Jesus is has grown, and that's being reflected back in the book. I took a class in my undergrad on the Gospel of John that just was like, oh my goodness, a lot of the Old Testament allusions that are going on there, and the intentionality, right, really reminded me that these are not just uh, gospel as a genre, we talked about genre last time, isn't just sort of narrative, like story, like beginning to end, like these are theological narratives, they have purpose, and they're trying to tell us things, and John is... John's trying to do that and does it really intentionally, and there's a beauty to that. Are um, we on n- number one? Number one now. Number one. Guess. What do you think it is? You'll never guess. I'm going to say Genesis. Did he do his Genesis? Other... Genesis, because there's naked people. How many Old Testament? <laughs> I think he's only done one Old Testament. So this is. No, the... Psalms. Psalms is also Psalms. Psalms. Oh, yes. Sorry, okay. So this is New Testament. Testament. My favorite book of the Bible. My number one. First Peter. Oh, First Peter. I love First Peter. I don't really have like a super strong, well, I guess part of it was that book was pretty influential for me as I like thought through sort of pacifism and just war and violence and the ethics of Jesus on that. That book was really influential, particularly chapter, I think, two going into three. But first Peter is again, kind of got that Philippians balance of like, Peter is just so eloquent about uh, our theology, like who we are, uh, that we have an inheritance, all these different pieces. Uh, and then yet he's so like practical, like he talks to different groups of people and it's just like, this is how you live. So he's so infused in sort of the ethics of Jesus. Um, and you can just see that coming into play that I just, I love that book. So first Peter, number one, best, better than all the rest. Good choice. Wow. That makes me feel embarrassed because my top five was bathroom items. (laughs) Well, you can improve. And you're doing my favorite Bible books. Thanks, Matt, for Sam, making Sam, me what, feel guilty once again. What would be your top number one? I feel inspired. You should feel inspired oh, instead yeah, of guilty. That's right. Not guilty. Lots of good Bible talk today. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about how they can find us. Yeah, people, we've talked about this before, but people can find us on Facebook. Please like us. Facebook.com slash Curious Church. We had some new likes. Thanks, folks. Thanks, people. You can leave reviews on iTunes. Please review us. We have a few reviews Positively. Now. Thanks, thanks, folks, especially Sam for that five-star review. <laughs> that really helps people find the show. You can always email feedback to us, too, at CuriousChurch at GrantSprings.org. And uh, can you put a couple lectionary resources on the Facebook page? Yes, we'll do that. If you look in the description of this episode, there will be a couple of links to some lectionary resources if you're new to that or want a place where you can find those readings we'll do that great well thanks for joining us i'm sam i'm aaron i'm matt thanks for being curious with us